Well, it's so good to see you this Christmas Eve. Merry Christmas to our Dawson family. I'm so thankful that you're worshiping here. I know we have friends and family members that are here. I see familiar faces that are back at home, and I know your mom and dad and grandparents are glad that you're sitting in that pew next to you. I know that we have uh, new friends that are here today. Maybe this is your first time to visit us here at Dawson. We're so thankful that you've chosen to worship with us. I'm going to invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 2 this morning, specifically Luke chapter 2 verses 1 through 9, Luke 2. Verses 1 through 9. If you don't have a Bible, you can find a Bible in the pew rack in front of you there. And then also the words of our text will be on the screen that are behind me there. Uh, you know this, but I just remind you of some things that, that are important to us individually or as families. That Christmas is a time that we gather around great stories. We gather around great stories in our workplace, uh, with friends, certainly with family members. And these stories, they get passed down from year to year. Oftentimes they get passed down in the, the books that we, we uh, reread, uh, the movies that we rewatch, the songs that every year we hear again, and they just don't grow old. I don't know about you, but these past couple of weeks, we've been catching up on some of the Christmas movies that we uh, always watch every year. And so we uh, maybe, I guess, Monday night watched Miracle on 34th Street, which is the 1947 version of that. And so classic tonight, we'll watch It's a Wonderful Life, which is a Christmas Eve tradition for our family going back for years and years and years. We also watch other Christmas classics like Santa Claus 2 and Elf and, you know. <laughs> Those kinds of things that are always good. Home Alone. I mean, these are all movies that we know when we rewatch every year because Christmas is a time that we're galvanized by great stories. We reread books in our house around Christmas. Danielle has a basket that has nothing but Christmas books, and we store it up in the attic, and every year we bring it back down. The boys are older now, but when they were younger, we would, uh, through the Christmas uh, season, we would read some of those books to them before we put them down to bed. And I'm sure that some of you have those kinds of traditions here because Christmas is a time that we're galvanized by, by great enduring stories. And I think those stories capture our imagination largely because Christmas has at its center the greatest story ever told. The greatest story ever told, a story that split the calendar between B.C. and A.D., a story that continues to revolutionize the world that we live in, not only cities and states, but families and individuals. It's a story, the truest story ever told, that is told in this way in Luke chapter 2. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was the governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger 
because there was no place for them in the end. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Paul is the story here. To be able to remind ourselves that all stories have certain characteristics to them. All stories are going to have a setting. All stories are going to have characters. All stories are going to have a a pivotal meaning that is often seen in the climax of the story here. And the greatest story ever told certainly has these characteristics to it. And as we think of the greatest story ever told in Luke chapter 2 here, the nativity scene, we think about these elements of what every story has at its center. I think with me this morning, this Christmas Eve morning of the setting of the greatest story ever told. Luke begins with these words in the days of Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus was the adopted son of Julius Caesar. Yes, the Julius Caesar that was immortalized in Shakespeare's play where he's betrayed by Brutus and Cassius. That Julius Caesar has an adoptive son that is Caesar Augustus here. Caesar Augustus rules in a time what was unprecedented. We have decades and decades of what was called the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. It was an unprecedented time of peace and prosperity for the Roman Empire. It was a time during uh, Caesar Augustus' reign where you would have a mail system that was introduced. You would have a first century highway sort of system of roads being built here. Caesar Augustus's reign was so successful that he would take upon himself titles like this, Savior. Caesar Augustus was called Son of God. He took upon himself the title Lord. He took upon himself the title Bringer of Peace. Now don't miss the irony of this. And the greatest story ever told, the gospel writer Luke says, in the days of Caesar Augustus. Yes, the Caesar Augustus that takes upon his name, the name Savior and Lord and bringer of peace. What Luke is doing is he's contrasting what is occurring here. He's saying, you know about Caesar Augustus who calls himself the Son of God. But I'm here to tell you about the birth of the Son of God. You have heard of Caesar Augustus who calls himself Lord, but unto you will be born the true Lord. You have have heard of Caesar Augustus who calls himself the great bringer of peace, but unto you the prince of peace will be born here. In verse 2, we have another historical name that is given to us. Not just Caesar Augustus, but Quirinius. Verse 2 tells us he is the governor of Syria. He is a regional governor here who is responsible for doing the work uh, of Caesar Augustus edict. He's uh, along with, uh, with hundreds of other people that actually are going to make this census work out. And this census would lead a pregnant Mary along with her betrothed Joseph all the way from Nazareth back to Bethlehem because Joseph was a descendant of the lineage of King David. When they traveled back to Bethlehem, Caesar Augustus didn't know this. Quirinius didn't know this. But all of this taxation and census to fill the coffers of the Roman Empire, it was all being used, the very handiwork of God himself, to fulfill a prophecy that was given to the prophet Micah 700 years before 
the greatest story ever told in Luke's gospel here. Micah would write in chapter 5, verse 2, But O you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be the ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Augustus, Caesar Augustus knew not of this. Quirinius knew not of this here. But God, in the background, is orchestrating all of their plans and their plotting to be able to bring about a, a fruition of this prophecy hundreds of years before. Now, great stories have great opening lines. When I mean, you think of Charles Dickens, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times that ushers us into the world of great expectations. Or you think about indelible fairy tales that oftentimes start with what? Once upon a time in a land far, far away. And here we have Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit, who is telling the greatest story ever told with none of these literary flourishes. I mean, he gives us details of ancient rulers and ancient cities, ancient censuses, and, and the question might be, why? Why does the greatest story ever told begin with the details of these rulers and places and censuses? One of the temptations for all of us that are gathered here this morning is for the greatest story ever told, the story of Jesus Christ, to be sort of assumed as one of the greatest stories. It's a temptation for all of us to, to, to have Jesus as one of the great characters of the Christmas time. You've got Rudolph, and you've got Frosty, and you've got the Grinch, and you've got Buddy the Elf, and George Bailey, and you've got Ralphie with his BB gun. And all of this can sort of get, if we're not careful for all of us, this can kind of get mixed together with Joseph and Mary and the shepherds and baby Jesus. And maybe, maybe, just maybe, Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit, would write in the days of Caesar Augustus so that we, in 2023, would never be tempted to say, once upon a time. Maybe Luke would write in the days of Quirinius so that we would not be tempted to say, in a land far, far Away. You see, the birth of Jesus is not one story among others. It is the greatest story that defines all of our stories that are here this morning. That's the setting of this story that I want you to ponder this morning. But it's not just the setting I want us to see. I want us to see in the greatest story ever told, the characters, as we pull back the curtains and we have a spotlight shining upon the characters that are making their way to Bethlehem, you've got these characters that are coming out of the drama that we know to be the nativity. There's Joseph. There's Mary. There's baby Jesus. Luke doesn't give us much information about Joseph, does he? Uh, we know this. He's the adoptive father of Jesus. He would, we would find out later on in the Gospels that he's a carpenter, which is probably to get to the idea of what Joseph is doing. You need to think not someone that's framing a house. You need to think someone that's not putting in cabinets. You need to think of a stonemason to kind of get to the profession of what Joseph did. Joseph actually never speaks in the Gospels. Do you know that? You will search in vain for any words 
on the lips of Joseph. But while he's silent, his actions speak so loudly. He's humble. You see this? He faithfully is obeying God. He honors Mary when he first hears the news that Mary is expecting. And that was not good news to Joseph. That was news in his mind of betrayal. And he, as the text tells us, is going to divorce her quietly. Why? Because he wants to protect her. He wants to honor her. The angel of the Lord appears to Joseph, fills him in on the background of what the Holy Spirit is up to here. And Joseph never hesitates. He never questions. He obeys God and he cares for Mary. The spotlight goes to Mary. As we look at Mary, there's so much that we could say about Mary. But note that she's a teenager. She's going to the 8th grade or the ninth grade, most likely. Ostracized. She'd have been ridiculed. It's a small town scandal back in Nazareth here. Could you imagine her trying to explain what the angel of the Lord told her? Can you imagine what it was like for Mary to utter the words after she hears the angel of the Lord saying to her that, that uh, you are highly favored? And her words are simply, I am the Lord's servant. Mary was courageous, wasn't she? Mary, Mary is a model of radical obedience. Mary is one to emulate as we follow in discipleship that God calls us to here. But as important as Mary is, and as important as Joseph is, the spotlight does not stay long on this adoptive father and earthly mother. The spotlight gets us to the main character. The main character is the babe in the manger. There's never been a scene in all of human history that is more depicted in movies and television shows and paintings than what we have in our text right here. And it is amazing what Luke is not interested in telling us about the details. I mean, we, we've got so many questions that are just left to our imagination. They're left a little bit to our speculation of what happens in that first century culture there. There's no description of Jesus, of what he looked like. I mean, if you have been on a maternity ward and you have had a child, we brought home our oldest son, uh, Hayden, on Christmas Day 18 years ago. And I remember when he was born on December the 23rd, I remember the text messages that we sent to family and friends. I remember the questions that people were asking us. What's his weight? Who does he favor? What's his complexion look like? What is his length? All of those kinds of questions that you give a birth announcement to be able to share with family and friends. And Luke doesn't give us any of those details. Eight pounds, five ounces, we do not know. Does he favor Mary? I wish we knew. What was the color of his hair? What was the length of Jesus? Was, was, he, was, he, uh, was he cute? Cuddly? All these kinds of questions that we would have. Absolute, complete silence. This is one of the times that we wish that one of the gospel writers would have been someone who actually would have given some more details to these kinds of questions here. But it's not surprising that Luke doesn't focus on any of those kinds of details. It's interesting that the church, with the lack of details, kind of has for 2,000 years felt the pressure to add some color to the story, to kind of embellish the story. So much of the details 
that are in our manger scenes. Much of the details come from the carols that we sing, and they come from the Christmas Christmas pageants and the tradition that over time gets mixed together with the truth. And so we have to sort of separate some of these things. Oftentimes, of course, we need to be reminded there's no wise men in the background of the greatest story ever told here. There's no innkeeper that is looking on with regret here. There's none of that. There's no little drummer boy off in the distance here. None of that is there in the text. The most amazing scene in all of human history is reported rather matter-of-factly. No birth announcement in Rome. No birth announcement in Jerusalem. The actual people that received the announcement of the birth of Jesus are shepherds out in the field here. And shepherds would have been criminals in that way, in that mind, of most of the Jewish people in that first century world. They were considered unclean here. So there's nothing about Jesus' birth that would have reflected in that first century world that he was a person who was going to be the savior of the world. He's the most important person that is going to walk the earth, but you would not have known that 2,000 years ago. See, the manger is bare in detail. But I don't want you to miss this, that the glory of God floods the entire story because the power is not in the details that Luke doesn't give us, The power of the story is not in the setting, but the power of the story is in the meaning of what is happening in the greatest story ever told here. Now, what does it mean? Can we ponder that this morning on Christmas Eve? Can we ponder what it means that God's only son is born into this world? This is one of the real challenges of being a pastor. This is one of the challenges of preaching on Christmas Eve. You you have to admit, and I want you to hear me admit this, that my words cannot fully do justice to the profundity of what it means that the Word became flesh. St. Augustine helps, 5th century, Bishop of Hippo, in a sermon on Christmas Eve, he, he said that he was made man in time, although through him all times were made. He was made man who made man. He was created of a mother whom he created. He was carried by hands that he formed. Can you think for a moment? Can you think deeply this moment of just how profound? Is there any more staggering truth that we celebrate than what we're celebrating at Christmas Eve here? That we're, we're celebrating that God's eternal son became the earthly son of Mary. Do you know what we're celebrating? We're we're celebrating that the one who is timeless will now celebrate birthdays, that the source of all language will now have to learn to form his words, that the bread of life will know what it is to feel hungry, that the one who provides living water will be sustained by his mother's milk. Do you know what we're saying here? The one who will walk on water will have to learn to crawl. The one who will walk on water will have to learn to take his first steps. There is no more astonishing claim in all of human history than the infinite, eternal Son of God would take upon himself frail human flesh. Can we even get our mind around it? Analogies help. C.S. Lewis, in Mere Christianity, he pauses to help us get the weight of what we're describing here. And he he says that that the incarnation is even more a miracle than if a human, if you or me, this very morning would descend and would live as a snail 
that, that distance between you as a human and the snail crawling on the concrete or in your grass. Does that help a little bit? Maybe a little bit. It helps. But I want you to see here, do you notice that in Luke's rendering of the greatest story ever told, he, he takes no time with analogies. He, he, he puts no parentheses around anything to say, oh, for those of you that are kind of struggling to understand exactly what's going on here, let me give you a helpful comparison here. None of that here. See, for Luke, Jesus' birth is not a theological puzzle that needs to be sorted out and put together. You know what it was? It was a world-changing announcement that the eternal Son of God was laid in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. That is a curious detail. All the details that Luke doesn't tell us, he gives us one little description, one little placement that maybe helps us understand what is the meaning of Jesus' birth. Luke focuses upon the manger. And it's the detail that he gives us. Now, you have to understand a manger is not just sort of a pottery barn bassinet here. A manger is a feeding trough. And every part of, of the story of Jesus' birth is carefully orchestrated by God. There is nothing that is accidental in this story. There is nothing that is happenstance in this story here. Luke tells us there's no room in the inn. There's a part of us that has to get out. We, we think inn. We think holiday inn. We think red roof inn here. There are, no, there are no first century Marriott points that you could redeem here. So there are no inns like that. There are no hotels that Joseph and Mary are trying to check into in Bethlehem. An inn was a guest room. So let's think about this for a second. Joseph is going back home and he's got family that are there, and he gets into one of the family's rooms there, one of the family's homes there, and they've got all these people that are there, and so there's no room in the inn, there's no room in the guest room in that first century world there in Bethlehem. The, 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 the family would have the animals come into a, a lower room so that the animals wouldn't be in the elements at night, so the animals wouldn't be in the midst of the danger of thieves at night. And so they would lay out, the family would, they would lay out hay, and then the family would sleep on that first floor, and then the, the animals would sleep a little bit closer to the door right there. And so there's no room in the inn, there's no room in Joseph's family, ancestral home that he's going back to. There's no room in the guest room, so he's got to stay, Mary and them do, not in the privacy and seclusion of their personal room. They've got to stay with the rest of the family, and they're sleeping with the hay. They're sleeping with the animals here. There's nothing about this that is luxurious. There's nothing about this that is dignified. There's nothing about this that is fitting for royalty whatsoever. Her maternity suite what was a, a dust floor with hay, with animals that are observing here. Now think about that. Our nativity scenes. Think about all the nativity scenes that maybe you've collected over the years. 
When you go back to your home, maybe you have it on a mantle, and maybe you traveled overseas, and you got a unique nativity scene that you brought back, and maybe there's an heirloom that gets passed down from one generation to the next generation, and you have that nativity scene. And maybe you've got a nativity scene that is maybe family-friendly for your five-year-old grandchildren, and they love to play with it, and you've got all kinds of nativity scenes. But I, I dare you to find a nativity scene that, that actually reflects Mary. You know, when you look at your nativity scenes here, you know what you see? You see Mary and Joseph and their clothing is pristine. Mary looks in our nativity scenes like she's glowing from a day at the spa is what Mary looks like. The animals, look at the animals in your nativity scene. The animals are spotless. The animals are dirt free here. Anybody raised on a farm here? Anybody have a farm? You know what? You will not actually find at a farm. You, you will not find things that are pristine at a farm. You know what? You will find at a farm. You, you will find a stench, flaws, dirt. Our nativities, they're fly free. Our nativities are dirt free, but not for Mary not for Joseph, and not for Jesus. Do, do you see what Luke wants us to see? But more importantly, do you see what God wants us to see? G Jesus is not born with a silver spoon in his mouth here. He's not born in luxury. He's not born in a royal palace. He could have been. He could have been born in Jerusalem to a family of a priest and, uh, or a lawyer. He could have been born to a Roman uh, emperor of the time. He could have been all of those things here, but he's not. He's not born in those places. Why? Because maybe it would be tempting for someone somewhere to think that Jesus was just for the well-off and just for the put-together. But Jesus is born in a lowly manger as a reminder that Jesus came for everyone everywhere, the down and the out and the brokenhearted and the seemingly all together and well-adjusted, all. God the Father is making a statement to all the world to see that Jesus will be a Savior for all the world. Tomorrow morning, you're going to open presents. Boys and girls, are you excited about that? Yeah, that's the loudest amen I've gotten in six and a half years at Dawson. And it's still going. I've still got another amen going there. So all the boys and girls are so excited. Grandchildren are excited. Children are excited. Children at heart that are in their mid-40s are really excited. And tomorrow morning, you're going to wake up. And if you're lucky here, Christmas morning, someone has gone to the trouble to wrap one present or two presents or maybe many more and placed it under a tree just for you. And tomorrow morning when you wake up, I want you to be extra thankful, not for what is in those presents, but I want you to be thankful for where those presents are. I want you to be thankful that those presents weren't wrapped and put in the attic. Or I want you to think about this. I want you to think that 
I want you to be thankful that those presents weren't wrapped and dropped on your roof. Those presents weren't wrapped and left at a neighbor's house. Those presents weren't wrapped and they become the end of a scavenger hunt or the end of an obstacle course. Those presents were wrapped and the gifts were left low. The gifts were left under the tree so that the smallest one in your family could crawl over to reach them. And when you look at those presents tomorrow morning, I want you to be reminded that this is what God has done to rescue all of us. The one whose love knows no bounds, whose saving hands stretch out for all to turn to him. God the Father placed the greatest gift in a lowly place, wrapped in cloths, placed in a feeding feeding trough for a crib. Why did he do this? So that anyone, anywhere, at any time could reach him. Do you hear that? So that anyone, anywhere, at any time could trust him by faith. Jesus was born in a manger so that everyone could know that he could be born in every human heart. And that includes your heart. Let us pray.